Hi, everybody. You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Today, we're talking about episode nine, season two, from Where to Eternity. The air date was March 12, 2000. It was written by Michael Imperioli and directed by Henry J. Bronctine. I've said that before, and I don't know if I said it right the first time, so I'm just going to go with what I said. HBO synopsis. Christopher has an out-of-body experience that spooks Polly to no end. Carmela urges Tony to have a vasectomy. Visiting her own psychiatrist, Melfi reveals the unholy alliance she's made with Tony, as well as her growing dependence on pills and alcohol. Title, From Where to Eternity, a.k.a. Goodbye, Matthew Bevilacqua, who got a 21-gunshot salute from Tony and Pussy. By the way, speaking of Matthew Bevilacqua, I negotiated him down. Oh, my God. So <laughs> I'm tempted to just do it. I'm tempted to just do it. And I'll talk, I, yeah. I'll talk to you guys about the details later. But I feel like he might be kind of interesting for a live show because he has that background, you know? So um, <laughs> Very, also, it might be. Yeah. It'll bring be it on. Yeah. Interesting. He was on Extra the other day. Yeah. He, well, he's, doing, he's making rounds. But, you know, I'm not going to lie, man. Um, You're a little afraid? A little scared. <laughs> yeah, a little scared. Uh, so... The title is also a play on the 1953 movie From Here to Eternity. And that was a movie that I never saw, but that cleaned up during award season. Yeah, and it cost like a million to make, and it made 30 million back then. Wow. That's a good return. Frank Sinatra Uh, was in it, too. Have you guys seen it? No. I have. You have? Yeah, of course. You're an old soul. Yeah, I love classic movies. Back then, it was really explicit, too. It was very sexual for its time. Castaway was pretty uh, ahead of its time, too. <laughs> um, let's jump right into the to the show. I thought we'd start with the opening sequence. Chris in the hospital. He wrote this episode. Or Michael Imperioli wrote this episode. I wonder if he picked the song. I don't know. I was wondering that. So episode eight ends with no song. And this show starts with a song, which I thought was kind of like nice bookend symmetry. Yeah. So the song's My Lover's Prayer Mm -hmm. by Otis Redding. And what can you tell us about Otis Redding? He actually has one of the most interesting stories, I think, of being discovered. I mean, obviously, he's considered the king of soul, I'd say. But how he was discovered, he used to be a janitor at Stack Studio. And he was mopping the floor when this uh, band called Booker T and the MGs were recording. And they, I mean, I think they had a hit song called Green Onions at the time. So they were like a huge instrumental band. And... Um, Otis, I guess something happened and he just sang and like the rest is history. That's how he was discovered. He was like a janitor at a studio. Goodwill hunting, but for music? Yeah. Crazy. And, you know, he's most famous for sitting on the dock of the bay, I think, is probably his biggest song. Beautiful song. Yeah. But I didn't love this choice, if I'm going to be completely honest. I love Otis Redding and I get it, my lover's prayer, but it was... It was just a little too, like, funky for me for some weird reason. Music supervised this song. What would you have put in its place? Oof. I don't know. I'd have to think on it. Okay. Everybody Hurts back. by R.E.M. I just feel like no, it was a, a little on the nose in a weird, in the wrong way. Yeah. Like, it wasn't completely, it, like, I get what it was trying to do, but I think we could have picked a better soul song. Yeah, yeah. Nothing against Otis Redding. No. I love the doc that he talks about. I believe I have actually sat on that dock. Really? And looked out on the bay, yeah. Watching the time go by? Yeah. Um, Regularness of life. So, can you live without a spleen? Yeah. So, the spleen filters blood and helps the body fight infections, but it's not essential for survival. 
people without spleens are more prone to infection, coronary artery disease, and pneumonia. So when they said that they were going to have to pull the spleen out, that's exactly where my head goes. Can Christopher do his job being the heir to the throne without a spleen? And apparently the answer is yes, you just got to wear a jacket. Um, I read there's a couple different ways that you can have your spleen removed, and some of it was drug abuse. So maybe this was uh, just good for him because it was probably on his way out. Um, We're introduced to Silvio's wife. This is the first real activity that we've got from her, right? Gabriella Dante, mm. played by Maureen Van Zant. Not a whole lot of information about her. Do you guys know anything I, I about her? I couldn't find much. Other than that she's Stephen Van Zant's wife in real life. Speaking of Stevie Van Zant, did you guys know that he was in a car accident as a teen where his head went through a windshield? Really? You know well, that's that? why he wears the bandana. That's As a result, he was left with several scars on his head, and the scars are what led to the hat and scarf look that, he always, oh. that, he's, that he's now famous for. I assume that was like a Jimi Hendrix... Um, He also got an honorary degree from Rutgers, which we all know would have made Tony Soprano very proud. That's funny. Chris's mom is different. I don't like this one. I don't like this one either. She has too many lines. Was it the vodka? Fucking vodka. Did Adriana say that? Mm -hmm. Did you see? Did you guys see her mouth move when she said it? Because I didn't see her mouth move. I thought that was like a technical glitch where it was like at like voiceovered, but her mouth wasn't moving. Right. Well, she was putting her hands up. Yeah, but, but that was Adriana's voice, mm-hmm. right? We got a cast, Joanne Moltisanti, for Many Saints. Who is going to play opposite Alessandro Nivola? Think about that. Do you have one? I think I've got it. I don't know her name, though. Hold on, let me find it. She was in The Shape of Water. The mother. I, oh, she's too mm. old, though, isn't she? She would be a young Joanne Moltisanti, like Christopher's mother in like her early 30s. Early 30s. So not Sally Hawkins is her name. I don't know. I have to think on it. By the way, God bless all the parents out there that named their boys Alessandro (laughs) or Alejandro, which I'm particularly, which I have a particular affinity for. I mean, talk about being ahead of the race from day one when your name is one of those two. Lady Gaga wrote a song about Alejandro. Do you like that song? I do. That song has a great hook. Great hook. Um, What was Janice dressed for? She came in hot. You know, that elevator opened, and she was out. I don't know. Everyone was wearing black, though. Yeah, but like, Richie was wearing black, but he was wearing a members-only jacket, so they weren't going to a funeral, but... She was holding a beggar's cup outside, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. His stare, though. Do you, do you have anything on where Janice was going? No, I chuckled at your note about it, because it is a little overtly dressy for her. Yeah, she came in like she had a scene to do and then she needed to, she was like late for a dinner reservation yeah. or something. Um, I, I want to comment, I want to point out Uncle Richie's stare at Tony after he hugs Adriana. It felt a little forced. There was some sort of like disconnect between the direction and the acting, but it was definitely ominous. It kind of looked like this show's all about purgatory and where do you go in the afterlife, right? Title says it all. It kind of looked like he was walking into a kind of purgatory of his own because we yeah. see that next scene, which is one of my favorite scenes. Well, he tells him I told him not to come unless he had information. And Richie was showing up and knew immediately, yeah, I know, I'm here for that reason, and let's go outside. Um, great line, when Richie goes outside with the guys. Start talking. Back the fuck off. All right, all right, what do you got, Rich? Again, David Provol's combination of line with the hand gesture, c'est magnifique. You know what I mean? Like, it's he's literally just kicking ass and taking names. And it's almost as if he's like one-take Richie. Like, he comes in, he does his scene, 
And then the the cameraman and the director just look at each other and they were like, I'm good. Are you good? We're good. Like Richie's scene is done because it's so, it's so baked in to what we watch. Every time we see him on camera, I feel like he comes in and he just crushes and then leaves. He just plays it so cool. He plays it so cool. he's unaffected by anyone. But that's studied is what I'm saying. Like he's, you know, like I would love to get a story about like, yeah, I would come in. I would do my thing. I was one take Richie. One take David. Wild. Um, So Tommy Biondi. From the OTB. That's who Richie's. Richie's given everybody sort of the download on where the path, to, giving him the path to Matthew Bevilacqua. OTB, is that is that a betting thing? Off-track betting? I didn't know. Do we know who Tommy Biondi is and do we care? No. No? I also didn't understand why out of all of them, Richie would know more about the situation than any of them. So we know that Matthew went to see him afterwards. Mm-hmm. Do it's, they know that, though? That's what I'm saying. Like, this is what something that we would talk about with Justin a lot. Like, in between episodes, mm-hmm. like, stuff happens that's not a part of the show. Yeah. So it could be implied that Richie went to Tony after it happened and said, hey, Matthew came to me freaking out about this thing. And so that's how they knew. That's the only thing Does I can think sense? of. I think it was the smartest thing for him to do in that yeah. situation, yeah, too, yeah. because it, they seem to back up that story uh, while they have him at the snack shop, and they're asking him, like, have you talked to anyone else? He's like, did Richie know? And there's this, they were checking to see how much Richie really knew. But I have the notes for uh, the OTB is off-track betting locations. It is betting. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. It sounded like it because I, I thought about it like the like from the financial sector, OTC, over-the-counter. Mm. So OTB registered betting to me, but I just wanted to be sure. For the hardcore OGs out there that know this stuff, I apologize. Um, so then they mention, uh, he also mentions a dealer named Quickie G. And my question to you guys was, is he bullshitting Tony? Like, was that a bullshit thing? It sounded to me like, but we meet Quickie G later, but was he trying to cover up for Matthew Bevilacqua or was he being sincere? I think he was being sincere. I mean... Usually you look somebody in the eye when you give him information like that. He was kind of like focusing on his cigarette a little too much. I don't know. I just felt like... I think he probably didn't have concrete, you know, confirmations. I think he was sincere. I mean, if we're on the assumption that he'd already shared that information about Matthew coming to him, then there's no reason for him to deviate. And why protect someone like Matthew that isn't a true gangster? And also Janice wanted to come because Chrissy is important to her. So I feel like, you know, whether or not he wanted to come, he might not have had inf- any information, but he's going to come and make a, make a, you know, an appearance to be like, oh, I'm really sorry. But also respect. have to like, oh, fuck, I got to think of something. Give him something because they said don't come back if you don't hear anything. Yeah. So he's kind of just like stalling. Back at the hospital later on, a couple things happen. Sil's wife is talking to Carmela and she mentions the name Ralphie. And we have not heard that name in the show yet. We learn a couple of things. I'll tell you what they are to set this up. And then I just, I'm going to ask the obvious question. Sill's wife mentions Mary Rutaldo, uh, who was Ralphie's wife. And that Ralphie's Gumar just gave birth via a C-section to an illegitimate child. I love the cut to the Holy Bible, first of all, which was beautiful and poetic. But Ralphie... Rutaldo. Did Michael Imperioli give birth to Ralphie Cifaretto, or is it two completely different characters? I listened to the soundbite like three or four times. It's the way that it was worded. I couldn't tell if they were talking about her maiden name or if mm. that was his... Ooh, yeah, is, maiden name. Is it maiden name? Because then it could be Ralphie. Interesting. 
What do you think? Do you have any thoughts on that? Are you going? Are you seeing where I'm going? Like, is it, I do. It's too. It's too easy to not talk about Ralphie Cifaretto right now. I know, but I don't know. I guess I was overshadowed by just the whole fact of like having a kid in sin because there were so much religion things for me on this one. But I didn't really put together that Ralph Cifaretto could be Ralph, the same Ralph. I dug deep too on the internet and couldn't find any connection. And there's no mention that I know of about Ralph's other kid but let's make it a pot of bing first where we go on record and say that michael imperioli planted the seed for the character that would become ralph cifaretto because there's i looked this i I turned over a bunch of stones too and i asked a bunch of people but when you go back and watch the show again it's it would be a perfect nice little needle thread if it was well i'm excited to watch it again when we first meet ralph because i'm curious what he was doing before well, like he was in Miami, and that yes. Brazilian dancer thing doesn't seem too far-fetched. The Gumar's Brazilian. Yeah. Oh, so it is him. I want it to be. We it, want, definitely it's going to be. Let's just say it's him. Later, Carm's back at the hospital when they have to go back. Tony gets a phone call that's, I guess, Christopher's heart stopped, which we'll talk about. Carm's monologue voiceover prayer. The cutting between scenes with her voiceover. I just wanted to comment on the technique of voiceover with intercut shots like that. When used correctly... As it was here, it's extremely impactful. I think of like a Rocky montage almost. It's Mm. just really well done. It could have been a really cheesy moment, but the camera activity just made it flower. It looked like there was a spotlight on her. It was really pretty the way it was shot, even though she was in a hospital room with the lights off. It was obviously not, I don't know, just the way it was shot was really pretty because it could have been corny. Did you notice uh, when there's an alert about him having a cardiac arrest, they say code blue, ICU 3. Three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number. Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity, you get three as a magic number. I have something on the doctor. Go for it. It was played by Seth Barish, and he appears later in the series in the episode Stage 5 as the same character. Interesting. Um, Dr. Hesh is the next thing that I wanted to just toss out real quick. Hesh knows all the vernacular. Is that just because he's an older guy and he's in and out of the hospital? Or is he reading, like, is he reading the New England Journal of Medicine in his spare time? I think he is. I think he's smarter. I imagine, because I remember around this time, there was ER... Uh, Grey's Anatomy was coming. Uh, medical shows are just really popular. House MD. Yeah, and you sit around and you watch enough of those. You learn mm. some of the vernacular. Just, just like watching a law, like a court procedural. Do you enjoy watching other shows like that? No, but I or? will always remember when I was in law school, my evidence professor said, evidence is like usually considered the hardest class in law school. And she said, I learned all of, she started the class, which is a whole, like a one year thing. Usually everything's in quarters. There's a one year of evidence. She says, I learned all the evidence that I will now teach you by watching TV. And she was half joking, but it was also, there's a lot of truth in it too, because it's, whenever they write the TV shows, they have legal consultants that are advising them. Oh, the great line by Polly with Dr. Hesh is, what the fuck you two talking about? Here's a random question I just thought of. Does Christopher have insurance? No, uh, maybe through the, the union, the, mm, that's possible. Barone sanitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Chris's dream. Okay. That's the next thing that I had here. 
So he basically gives an oral history of his dream, right? So you've got Mikey and Brendan, who we know are friends. Mikey Palmisi is obviously who we're talking about, and Brendan Fallone in the afterlife are friends. He also tells Tony and Polly to watch out for the three o'clock. And this is the three o'clock that Naya, you've been talking about for several weeks now. It's finally upon us. The question that I had for you guys before we dissect a lot of this other stuff is, he keeps on mentioning the Irish and they're winning all the hands. Is that as simple as the luck of the Irish or is there something between Irish and Italians that completely went over my head? Yeah, we hate each other. Is it because they win? Is it like that type of a situation? I honestly don't know, which is awful because that means I'm just born into that. Are you Irish, by the way? I am. Yeah. Well, Get out of here. Get out yeah. of here. So why do the Irish and the Italians hate each other? Is it like old country shit? I, I think if we're focusing on like a mafia-specific thing, it's just competition. Like if you've seen The Departed, yeah. there's a little rift between uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character and some wise guys from Providence that come through. Yeah. And they have to kill them to protect their own. And I, I don't know if there's any inherent backstory. I'd have to do some more deep diving on the, the mafia around that time. The Gangs of New York, the movie that Scorsese did, was that was that Italians versus Irish? Or was that Irish versus Irish? Irish versus it's, Irish. It's immigrant versus immigrant, if you yeah, want to think you of go. that. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's a good point. But they the both... Irish can't cook. Like, it's like a... Hey. It's like oh. a... I don't know. It's like a... It's like there's, it goes deeper, like... I'm bringing you a scone next week. What or is Irish... What is an Irish shepherd's delicacy? Shepherd's pie. There's not a lot, yeah. And Italians, chicken pot pie. Italians do have food cornered. But you don't have to brag about it. I know. I mean... <laughs> but we do. That's what we do. Mingiro's peppers. Forget about it, you know? Later on, Chris talks about how his dad got whacked. And that's when Polly mentions purgatory, which got me wondering about the difference between purgatory and hell. You got any wisdom as a card-carrying member? Purgatory is like a waiting room. It's a waiting room, right? Mm-hmm, which is ironic. They're in a waiting room for some of this episode. Oh, I like that. But it's it's basically like a middle it's state. It's where you go before you are, you know, you go to hell or heaven. It's kind of like, which I think is funny that there's three places to go. There's the Holy Trinity. There's, you know... There's three. Purgatory, you have to get purified there, right? You have to admit your sins, I think, you to go to heaven. So what I'm getting at here is the calculation that Polly came up with of how many <laughs> years, was that false. just bullshit? Or is that written in, like, the catechism somewhere? No, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> okay, that's so there's not a mathematical equation. I'm trying equation. to scam the system. Polly's uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Do you guys know more? Like, do you know, do you guys talk about purgatory in your families? Like, is is it a topic? Purgatory doesn't seem is like a, it. Purgatory is a not... It's a more, I think it's a scarier topic, honestly, because it's, it's, no one talks about it as much anymore. But is there like a fast track to hell? Like there's like, purgatory is a place where you have a chance to get into heaven, but what do you have to do to go straight to hell? Do you know that? Well, you have like read Dante's Inferno where there's different levels and that's where, uh, I have notes what Tony's talking about. Hell belongs for Mm -hmm. the rapists and the molesters. And in Dante's Inferno, there's actual levels that... You know, if you're there's somewhat levels of a bad, of purgatory. It, uh, there's levels of hell. Yeah. Levels of purgatory hell. is the door to each of those, I suppose. Also, side note, Avicii, that DJ, Avicii is like a layers of hell. It's like a term for mm. different layers of hell, too. That's what that means? Mm-hmm. Huh. He's a dark character. So what I read was that if you go to purgatory, you have a chance to get into heaven. But if you don't complete the obligations of your purgatory, you're just stuck in purgatory. You don't go to hell. Which some people say is worse. I think going to hell's worse. So there's actually seven I, I terraces of purgatory in Dante's thing too. 
After passing through the gate of purgatory proper, Vigil guides the pilgrim Dante through the mountain's seven terraces, and these correspond to the seven deadly sins. Seven and threes. So, Pauli tries to distinguish between mortal sins and venial sins. Mortal sins are serious and willful violations of God's law, things like adultery and murder, whereas venial sins are slight sins, the, which means, what I, from what I've read about this, is that they don't break the friendship with God. It's all about being God's friend. If you're not his friend when you die, you go to purgatory. If you are his friend when you die, then you go to heaven. It's kind of that back of the cereal box way to describe it. But they describe venial sins as things like light gossip. So, in other words, like what Carmela does with her friends is a venial sin. Whereas if you do gossip that like affects somebody's life and, and earning potential or career, like what's it called in the, like in the public domain when someone like defames Slander, you, yeah. defamatory, like defamatory stuff, that is a mortal sin and you can go to hell for that. I just think... You guys seem like very like casual Catholics here. Well, I mean, if I'm being frank, to me, Catholicism is you are a sinner always. So even when Chrissy woke up, the first thing he did was apologize, which I thought was so interesting because there's so much religion. Like he said, I'm sorry, which is basically like we're, as we're born with sin in the Catholic faith. That's why we have to be baptized. That's why we have to go to confession. Oh, Jesus died for your sins. Yeah, so, so yeah. We're, we're guilty you're constantly always. constantly sinning anyway. So they're always repenting and we're always sorry. We're always trying to like, so there's no winning here. There's right. no... You're born into a life of sin. Mm-hmm. I read that Catholics are not allowed to receive communion for unconfessed mortal sins. Did you guys know that? That would make sense. Sort of an honor system. Yeah, right? no, one, so no not, one would go up and be like, <laughs> So you're not allowed to receive communion, but just so that, do you guys think that like Tony and his crew, they get they take communion? Because they, they definitely haven't confessed these sins no, to priests. No, they don't go up to communion. They don't go, they don't I, think communion? Even, I think Carmela goes up because she goes to confession. She she confesses. She she she's earned the right to her communion. But these guys, and we're going to talk about Melfi. Like Tony's speech in Melfi's office in this episode is basically him justifying his existence because he's a soldier. Soldiers aren't going to confess because he doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. But I wonder if he takes communion on Sunday mornings. Um, observation on Chris. I love how he's pressing the morphine button when Carmela tries to tell him that Christ saved him. It's just a very intelligent conveyance of the sometimes ridiculousness of religion and blind faith, you know, whether you believe it or not, just like this whole, like, yeah, you were saved. And he's just kind of like, give me more, give me more. I uh, thought that was smart and kudos. Good writing there. Michael Imperioli. Um, so science said he was dead. We learn he was clinically dead. So I decided to explore this clinically dead phenomenon a little bit. And it's basically a medical term for the cessation of blood circulation and breathing, which sounds scary. You know, like there's no coming back from that, right? Um, And it happens when your heart stops beating. That's called cardiac arrest. And measurable brain activity stops within 20 to 40 seconds. So it's pretty instantaneous, but your tissues and your organs can survive clinical death for several minutes. In many instances, some parts of your body can be alive for several hours, which is kind of crazy. But the brain, however, loses functionality pretty quick, which is why if you are clinically dead and you don't come out of it quickly, no brain function, you're a vegetable. So it's safe to say that Christopher was fine, but I wonder how much 
illumination one can have in the clinically dead phase. Enough to hear from Mikey, enough to hear from, what's his friend's name, Brandon. Brandon. It's fascinating. I would, I would think it's that window right before, if I was in my own opinion. I wouldn't think it's when he's actually dead. Oh, when you see me, the lights. Yeah, like, I think he... Well, and I, I read about the light, too. Yeah. It, Tell me about this, the light. Um, although the specific causes of this part of near-death experience remain unclear, tunnel vision that they talk about can occur when the blood and oxygen flow is depleting to the eye. And this can happen with the extreme fear and oxygen loss that are both common to dying. So I had seen some documentary about that, and it really defeated me because... You want to believe in some of these things. And, yeah. Oh, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's such a shared experience. But when they break it down on a clinical level, like, this is why this many people experience this, because you're, it's like turning off the TV and that last little dim of it fading out. That's essentially what they're explaining it as, if you're someone who's a, a non-believer of uh, such a transference. Yeah. And usually, like, they say your life flashes before your eyes, or, like, all the things you feel guilty and you didn't do so. It's it's interesting. That's what he saw or he's feeling felt. guilty about Brendan and Mikey. I don't know. Do you think that he was convincing? I thought he was really convincing. I thought he actually did see these things. It might have been a dream, but whatever. I feel like it was it was vivid. It'd be a good Netflix show. I think he believes it. Damn it! There was a study that fifty eight patients who recounted near death experiences found that thirty of them were not actually in danger of dying, although most of them had thought that they were. So there's people that have these experiences, that, but when they do the research, you weren't actually even dead. So it was just their body or their mind coping with the trauma. Do you think he went to hell or purgatory? That's a good question. Definitionally, hell. Yeah. Because he's completed multiple mortal sins and he hasn't confessed those sins. And they get killed repetitively, which I've heard a rumor that that happens in hell. You die the same way you die over and over again every night. I thought it was interesting that uh, Tony and Puss, after they kill Matt, they go to an Irish yeah. restaurant. They're eating at a place called Duke's Stockyard Inn. It's a real place. It's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. The location was just an exterior shot. It was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania? They were not, but the shot of the exterior was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Which is Amish town out there. Is it? Yeah, I believe so. It looked like a good place to eat. And it was where they went the first time that Pussy killed somebody, right? So it was like full circle. Tony had killed somebody. Tony had killed his somebody. His first person. Pussy took Tony as his first sort of There's even discussion dinner. that the tile behind yeah, Pussy I saw that. creates horns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. They deliberately put that stained glass there. Because initially I I was I started to see all those rumors too. And I was yeah. like, there's no way that's that's like a big reach. And then there was one that said like someone from the actual crew admitted that they did that deliberately so it would look like he has horns or like a halo type thing. I have another uh, panning shot uh, related to Chris when he's at the hospital. When the detectives are there and they're talking to Tony, there's an interesting move around him and a crucifix on two different walls pass through Tony's head. tons of shit on that too. Crucifixes are everywhere. Well, they're at St. Erasmus Hospital. So there's going to be crosses, but there was a very dramatic amount of... Jesus. People are wearing crosses. Christopher's got the Pope on Mm -hmm. his neck, right? Mm -hmm. Next phase. Thank you, Christopher and Michael Imperioli, for providing us with this great series of scenes. Um, Tony and Carmela. So this whole dynamic of Tony that stems from the Ralph Rotaldo situation. 
the crazy line that I have here when Tony and Carmela are in bed. Hey, I had her tested for AIDS. What do you think I am? It was delivered to perfection. And the way the camera just sort of like rests its shoulder on Carmela's face and lets her sort of like melt into it was amazing. Then she goes to sleep on the, the couch. Music is the, best. the music comes in. Which I'm with you. The song is like, come, like, you know. Like, it works, but I feel like we could have done better. Yeah. Like we could have music supervised the shit out of this episode. Yeah, I'll think of something. And then later on, so she tells him that, you know, I want you to get snipped. And he's like, you want me to do what? which is a great facial expression. She doesn't want an illegitimate child in the family. What is it going to do to our name? Later on, they're in the kitchen talking about the same thing when he basically says no. AJ drops uh, ZD, which is such, every time ZD falls, I cry. Like Every time ZD <laughs> falls, an angel comes out of the sky and just sort of like floats down and Someone lands Someone goes to hell. He goes, I'm supposed to get a vasectomy when this is my male heir. Was that a little harsh? Yes. It's one of the meanest things he's ever said. Really? Yeah. But he wasn't really directing it at AJ. He was directing it at the room. Victims of abuse usually justify their abuser. (laughs) I I know you're a big fan of uh, Tony as a father, but you're not going to score any points on this one. Well, no, he redeems himself. We're going to get there. Um, So so if you apologize, you're allowed to do this. So we're we're sinners. We're sinners. Mm, Fair enough. We'll talk talk about whether he did it or not. But I'm going to finish off Tony and Carmela by saying I'm going to jump to the very end because it's all these are all bedroom scenes, right? Carmela's reading Memoirs of a Geisha. Uh, did you read that book? Did you see the movie? I saw the movie. Saw the movie? Yeah. Um, what is a geisha exactly? It's a prostitute. Is basic. it a prostitute? It's though? a high, fancy, like, cortisone type one. But they do, like, dancing and artistic, like, a, a genetically engineered prostitute that they created, She's basically. She's the so most, are, like, well-mannered, unbelievably, like, meticulous. Like, they train to be right. geishas. They sleep with, like, a thing on their head yeah, and they so can't they move. they don't have any wrinkles on their face. But there is a sexual component to it? They're all virgins, and then people yeah. purchase them. Okay. All right. But you it want to be a geisha. It's I didn't realize the book ever. was written in 97, so yeah. it was the uh, Fifty Shades of that time. It's a story of a geisha working in Japan before and after World War II. It's also worth pointing out here that From Here to Eternity was also a movie set during World War II. So there were two sort of like bookending... Soldiers. World War II references. Whoa, I like that. Soldiers. Did you just come up with that, or did mm-hmm. you have that, like... Oh, I... Well, and here's Soldiers. the other tie-in. Yeah. The prostitute, ultimately, it's revealed that uh, they have an illegitimate son. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which so, ties into the concern about being Ralphie. So the movies and the book references are not accidental. Mm-mm. Okay. Do you guys find her just as a character right now, like, her contradictions? She was, Carmella? Yeah. Well, she's she uses she's the confession to get out of everything. But just her, the way that she pivoted into being okay with Tony... And switching that to let's have a child was a... Yeah, Yeah. what is that? Is she trying to reconnect with Tony there? uh, Like, so the Ralphie thing doesn't happen to her? Or is she, like, serious about having another baby? I think she does not want to have another baby. I think it's... I don't know. I was trying to figure out where she could go in her head to kind of understand if my husband just went and shot someone and I feel bad and I want to give him comfort... And he doesn't need to get a vasectomy. Like, 
What am I thinking? Did she know what he was going to do when he says after, we'll get to the AJ and the pizza in a minute. Yes. But she knew what he was going? I think so. The, the pauses and the, and the silent looks? She knew he was going to do something bad. Well, that's why I think when he comes back, she has a different demeanor a little bit. But the kid thing and the non-vasectomy, I can't tell if like maybe subconsciously she's like, okay, you're the boss, whatever you like. I don't know. I don't know if she was just kind of overcompensating in a weird way. I think she definitely knows. You can tell by the nonverbals or the way she'll ask a question. If he doesn't answer it, then she kind of can come to her own He's conclusion. He's not trying to implicate her. But then I think a lot of times, and that's why she's so interesting, is I think all that turns her on, too. Like, I know. He's such a powerful guy. He just protected the honor well, of this family, and, and now he's come home, and now I'm going to... Later, when he... I mean, it's a way later episode, but he... You can maybe cut it out, but when they're up at the cabin... Like, you remember me in high school? I got in a fight. You were so turned on by that. Carmel's like, we're not in fucking high school anymore. (laughs) So she does have a a past for being turned on by his power. Well, she also gives it to him in the kitchen. The Pope doesn't even believe in Trojans, and you want me to get snipped. Isn't that a little bit hypocritical? Look, Tony, I'm thinking of my family first. That's all. Well, whatever's down here, it's God's creation. Isn't it a sin to undo the good work he's done? Well, you should know. You made a living of it. You're unfucking believable you know that? He cracks into a thousand pieces. Before we leave Carmela, talk about her going from the Bible in bed to Geisha in two separate scenes. Any thoughts on the intent there? She's reading the Bible when she first hears about Ralphie Rutaldo. Okay. And then later at the end of the show at night when she's like ready to like be intimate with Tony, she's reading Geisha. She goes complete 180 in the same episode. I think she kind of abandoned her faith for a while. Because he's, he's okay. It didn't suit her anymore? Yeah, she doesn't need it anymore. He's okay. What do you think? Yeah, I I feel like she, this is what, it goes back to what John was just saying about how she, like there's this mystery of Carmela. There's this paradox of religion. There's this paradox of Carmela where on one side, one hand she's got the Bible and on the other hand she's got memoirs of a geisha. But she's got the Bible until Chrissy's fine. Like, like I'll say a prayer when I'm on a plane. It's like, but why am I saying a prayer now? I never say a prayer any other time. Is God going to hear me right now? I think she was reading the Bible because she was mad about Ralphie. But she doesn't read the Bible every night, does she? She's only reading the Bible because her nephew's in the hospital. Oh, no, yeah, I think it was the Christmas She was reading thing. the Bible because she was, like, sighing and, like, like laboriously, like, working through it. I felt like she was trying to find solace in God mm. because her husband is, you know, so I think she was more trying to be, like, a good catholic so she can win points to save christopher like look i'm reading the bible every night please help us well and be on the lookout because it was read and i don't know the specifics but in future episodes we do see her reading memoirs again yeah well, multiple it takes times her a long yeah. Time yeah, to get a, through a book. really really good product placement by the publisher and by hbo um melfi session i don't really have any questions but i it was my favorite scene because of Tony's speech. Excuse me, let me tell you something. When America opened the floodgates and let all us Italians in, what do you think they were doing it for? Because, because they were trying to save us from poverty? No, they did it because they needed us. They needed us to build their cities and dig their subways and to make them richer. The Carnegies and the Rockefellers, they needed worker bees and there we were. But some of us didn't want to swarm around their hive and lose who we were. We wanted to stay Italian and preserve the things that meant something to us, honor and family, and loyalty. And some of us wanted a piece of the action. Um, you know, Melfi's really really sticking it to him. I love her more than I've ever loved her before in this episode. Who deserves hell? 
you know, he talks about the worst people and then the nervous tick as he scratches himself after he says that. Like, he's always unsure of himself in front of her. It's the one place where he's truly vulnerable and I keep coming back to that because it really is a beautiful thing to watch. He completely deconstructs in her office, but then he picks up all the pieces and he walks outside and he's a stoic bear, you know, in the real world. Um, Soldiers don't go to hell, he says. The save us from poverty speech was the wow moment of the episode for me where he talks about the GP Morgans of the world, uh, which is great. He talks about honor and family and loyalty. Powerful, powerful speech. Uh, Camera sitting on him the whole time. So he delivers the whole thing sort of like we have a DP in the other room and I forgot what the term is when it's the camera doesn't cut. What's it called when the camera doesn't cut? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like uh, a set frame. Like a know, one, locked frame. A, a one shot. You know, like the true detective movie. Continuous. Uh, no, the, it's, uh, he's not even plugged in, so I can't uh, have him just speak into our ears right now. It's like, you know, the true detective with the Matthew McConaughey, uh, that episode where it's like five minutes of continuous camera yeah. and it doesn't cut. Anyway. That's, did, uh, did you think about Full Metal Jacket? during the training part of that movie where the drill sergeant talks about how God has a special hard-on for soldiers because it keeps heaven full of... I just, the tie-in oh, wow. was, was too strange because of the previous episode's title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you may want to soundbite that. It's profound enough because it's the same sort of justification that, like, you're a soldier and you're allowed to murder. And, and Naya just mentioned soldiers mm-hmm. yeah. and the movies. Wow. I like that. This shot you're saying, Elias just texted me, it's called a one-er. A one-er. There you go. Thank you, <laughs> Elias. Okay. And then he says that one line at the end, some of us wanted a piece of the action. He's absolutely true. And even Melfi acknowledges his truth, you know, that everybody's a gangster. And in an earlier episode, we see the guys at the dinner table at one of Melfi's dinners saying that, you know, sometimes I don't know who's a bigger gangster or some of the people in the boardroom. So Tony's speaking truths, but you know, murder is murder and there's, you can't really, I don't think, I don't think you can justify murder. Do you guys think, do you guys, what is your politics on, on murder? It's wrong, right? Or do you think it's, there's justifiable murder? But is it considered, well, is it considered murder if you're a if soldier, everybody knows the, the rules, rules and they, you know, like everyone knows what's at stake? Yeah. No. It's, I guess they turned on Christopher. So that would be, I mean, but that's also possible too. Everyone knows that might happen too. They stab I, you in the back. Yeah. I had a nitpick about him mentioning Carnegie uh, when he referenced the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. Yeah. Uh, he was a Scottish immigrant who was the definition of the American dream. So it was strange that Tony would place him into a someone that was more entitled or that hmm. he that they laid the foundation for. Tony was rapping, though. Yeah. He was just rapping. He was naming names. He was dropping bombs. Well, they're, they're incredibly talented at making themselves the victims of their own stories, I think. Yeah. Well, he finds, wherever he can find justification to his existence, he will. And he, and he constantly, continuously does it. And most of the time, we, myself included, buy it. And well, I'm like, yeah, you're totally. right. Totally. But he then completely contradicts himself later, saying, I thought you said I was the victim because of my mom, like, under these circumstances. Which for- completely like loses any weight of what i was just like yes go 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 tony yes preach right that can be took it away of the whole show uh, of this episode in particular do you think that melfi's reaction to her judging tony is gonna dictate moving forward her having opinion like it's a it's a terrible place to be where she can validate his things that he does but then feel guilty about that or she can challenge him for it and then be fearful of 
the repercussions of that. She's really in a bad place right now. She broke the doctor-patient wall by judging, taking a stand. That was the term they kept throwing around. When she's in front of Elliot, she's confiding in him that, you know, she's taking Ativan, which is anxiety medicine, and she's drinking again um, because she feels boxed in. Did and she judge him, though? You she did. Think she, she, I think she, I mean, she admitted it. She admitted it to, to Elliot. That, was I insensitive? And perhaps, did I do it deliberately? Do I hate him? You know, he came to me. I, I have my in my notes when you you were talking about with like Tony saying like, you know, you thought I was okay because of my mother. He yeah. was looking for Melfi to give him a, bl- a warm blanket, and he she wasn't giving him a warm blanket, That's and that true. and that really threw him because that's supposed to be like a safe place for him, and it was the it's first time. Fault, yeah. It was the first time that he didn't really feel safe in there, and that's what I think shook her. Was that wow? This is like my job is to make him feel safe and comfortable. And I broke that. I kind of, I, I took away, I took that away from him. And I really loved how the camera and, and the scene and the writing portrayed her as feeling very compressed and miniaturized and shrunken in Elliot's office. Mm-hmm. And it, she feels bad. I would feel bad if you say something to somebody in the heat of a moment, upon reflection, you, if you're a human and you're a repenting human, you'll feel like shit. Yeah. And so she feels that like she's talking about it, I think, from a human level. Like, what did I do? I didn't need to do that. He was actually broken, and he was confiding in me, and I, and I ruined that. So she thinks, it's, she thinks she's going to have to work hard to rebuild it. Because remember how we've been talking about how the camera has them far apart, and this, this season, it's getting closer and closer and closer. I feel like in, a, in an instant, she's kind of just gone and just opened it up again. And that sucks, because it's really hard to build relationships with people over time. You know, definitely. Anyway, you know, I can talk about Melfi forever. Um, no comments about her clothes lately. They're no, she's just very, killing it. They're all the same. She's, she's, I think the focus is you know, the earth. She's, she's the queen of earth tone. <laughs> she owns it. It's, it's her. Earth you don't, tones, you yes. don't touch that corner. That's Melfi's corner, that's right? True. No color. We'll get some color in the springtime. Maybe actually this episode was filmed in the springtime. So it's a curious choice. Um, let's move on to Polly. Okay. So Polly. The first question I have for you guys, though, is what's up with the wind chimes? I thought it was going to be your wind thing. That's my wind thing. It's his wind thing. Oh, your wind thing. But did you guys catch the Roman, ancient Roman connection, or am I the only one that dove deep on this? Two wind chimes? Yeah. Oh, no. I just thought it was because he went to a psychic, and it's like something usually hippies have outside their house, or weird people. You might like this, then, because you're the one that told me about the evil eye. Okay. Yeah, I'm a lucky. Yeah. And in ancient Roman history, it was thought that wind chimes warded off evil spirits, and they were charms against the evil eye. Interesting. And that when you look sense. up the history of wind chimes, Roman history is attributed first. So it's possible, I'm not saying it's fact, it's possible that wind chimes originated in the motherland. That makes sense. So, because they, they, kept, they cool. kept showing it, and it kept being wind, and obviously when the wind chimes when it's 3 o'clock in the morning and, and Polly wakes up with his girlfriend, it's his girlfriend, right? It's not his gumar, because he's not married. So that's his girlfriend, right? Why is she a gumar? She's not, there's no... Yeah, do you have to be in a relationship yeah, to have a gumar? Yeah, I feel like you have to. Otherwise, they're all I think just... it's just a side girl. I think... Because SNL just did a bit yeah, on no, Gumar. Yeah, that was so good. And it was like the husband. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Why are you so good to me? You're so <laughs> perfect. That was great. Oh, man, that was fantastic. Um, so, Polly's girlfriend, Michelle, she's played by an actress named Judy Reyes, who is a regular on Scrubs. Did you guys ever watch Scrubs? 
pass. I'm a Zach Braff fan, but yeah, I passed too. I feel I like you it, loved Garden State too. Right? I did. Driving around listening to the shins. I was on a shin bender <laughs> for like a year because of that movie. Yeah. No shins for Naya? No shins for me. No shins for Naya. I get it though. Um, so Polly goes to see. So the reason I mentioned Michelle, who's Polly's girlfriend, I'm just going to call her his girlfriend, okay? Polly goes to see a guy. She encourages him to go see a guy that connects to the afterlife. Have either of you done something like that before? Yes. Tell me your story. It was not good. It was like very horoscopy. Was it legit? No. Did I they, mean, did I, they know things about you that you didn't tell or think they should no, have known? No. So it was hoaxy. It was a bad, yeah. But I have friends that have done it and they swear by it. They say that the same thing happened. No. I feel like, I feel like a, no Irish would ever do that. Well, and it's a very anti-Catholic thing. I, yeah. I went in Catholicism. I never went to an actual school for it, but I had religious education classes. And I vividly remember our whole seminar on, like, the um, Ouija board is bad and certain music and all of this satanic ritual is real and you need to watch out for it. And sick shit. Sick shit. And there was that fear. That's, like, you asked of, like, a lot of this... Heaven and hell, it's it's a lot of fear-induced, like, you do not want to mess with this. Well, so he's someone away. who can talk to the other side. Yeah. That's where it becomes tricky, because also I thought it was interesting, because someone like Polly, I would never in a million years think he would do this out of all of them, but he's so absolute that I, I guess it does make sense that he's like, i got to figure this out, I'll do anything. But he's the he's in between, like, where Chrissy went is kind of, it's like a parallel of, like, there's the aftermath of, an unexpected tragedy in this episode and we see what happens after it which is very rare and also like we're getting someone to talk about the afterlife of people things that people are gone which is so crazy to me that i don't know it was it was a very interesting episode with religion for for me totally um the obviously the great line of this scene that's what this is you know satanic black magic sick shit it's so perfect the way he delivers it. I just love that. I, I rewound it over and over again. Uh, he mentioned Sonny Pagano. Sonny Pagano was in the room, okay? Uh, Sonny Pagano got Polly shook. Sonny Pagano's a character in The Many Saints, is all I'm saying, okay? Yeah. Character uh, that we need to find a name for. It's exciting to think in this universe that it's completely plausible that these guys are just tortured by the souls that they have ended. It brings the gravity back to, you know, we always joke about all oh, these guys are so fun and they're funny and we entertaining show, but they're murderers. Yeah. They're, they're criminals and they have to live with this, even if it's real or not. And we do hear people struggling with killing certain people. They have bad dreams and we even see certain characters, I won't tell who, has dreams of people he've shot come back to life. And it's just really interesting, this whole afterlife obsession David Chase has and how he chooses to portray it in these episodes for me. Did you guys notice the Madonna figure in the... There in were, the corner of the psychic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which Polly has a encounter with later in the series, too. Which I thought was a very weird thing for a psychic to have in his house. So to me, it only made sense because later, way later, Polly's in the bang and something happens, so... I feel guilty when I ghost somebody on text. <laughs> so... I mean, killing somebody? Are you, you kidding me? You wouldn't be able to handle it, Vic. No, I don't think. man. No way. Would you be able to keep the secret? Like, if I killed somebody and I confided in you, would you ha- would you be able to take that to the grave? That's different. 
Yeah, I think that's different. Depends on who the person is. So yes, you would. If somebody has the confidence to confide in me, that it would imply a strong relationship. So great Tony line when Polly goes back to talk to him about this medium. They call him a medium, right? Um, Tony says, "Does he know where Matt Devilacqua is?" Huh? Did you ask the fucking Ghostbuster that? Because we're out there breaking our ass trying to find his kid, and you're up there fucking around the Nyack. That's <laughs> such a good line. And, and Michael Imperioli hats off. That's some tricky, smart writing there. If that, if that was, uh, if he did that without any assistance, no assists on that one from Frank Renzulli or Mitchell Burgess or uh, Robin Green. Like, so kudos, to, kudos to Michael for that one. The next thing he says, which was interesting and also sort of like synchronous, if you will, is that. He tells Polly that none of this shit means a goddamn thing whilst Metallica's King Nobody is playing in the background. I, t- I saw that, um, yeah. That was very intentional. Um, also, it's very, very, very hard to license or get any participation from Metallica. So kudos to whoever made that happen. To just close the book on Polly, he doesn't get satisfaction from Tony, so he goes to his chain-smoking priest. <laughs> And he sits I noticed down. that detail, too. It's so weird. Yeah, <laughs> come on. Priests are so hypocritical. It's crazy. Anyway, so he basically tells him that this business transaction that he has with the church is coming to an end. And, you know, <laughs> I just am laughing because when I think of Polly in my head, it's just so fucking funny how serious he is about, like, you know, you were supposed to buy me out of the doghouse and this money didn't do me any good. So I'm, I'm not giving you guys a cent anymore. And he, and, and the priest tells him that psychics are heretics and thieves and practice witchcraft. But you know, as he's smoking a cigarette, no, but, but the way that Polly throws his hand up and it's just like, I'm out of here. It's like, <laughs> you know, oh, it's, it's so rewatchable. It's so good. And then even after he stops in front of the Jesus statue, cause yeah. he's like torn, you know, like he, yeah. he's, he wants to believe in it and, I think does and is afraid to go to hell or purgatory. Do you think Carmela's similar to Polly in that perspective, thinking that the church is the means to justify yeah, your actions? but she has blind faith. Yeah. His is with conditions, as she, you can see. She questions it sometimes. But that's 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 part of that's okay. Yeah, so like she's, have that she's push and pull. had a couple more yeah. chapters on Catholicism than Polly has. Um, He's very old school. <laughs> One thing I can say is religion does lead to violence. Well, that's a Which fact. Which happens yeah, all the, in this episode all for the sure. Wars. Yeah, that's true. Oh, that's actually interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, 21 bullets in Matthew Bevilacqua in an episode when you probably see 21 crucifixes. You probably see more than that, but definitely 21. You just I'm hit gonna on go, something. I'm going to go count them because... Naya with the soldiers today and then Naya soldiers. with the violence and the religion... 21 shots divided by the seven deadly sins. Multiply it by three. three. Even Janice, <laughs> though, when she comes in, we have to pray. We have to pray. And AJ goes, we, we are, are Jesus. <laughs> yeah, like, it's just, like she doesn't even know, like, we just have to do this. This is what we have to do. Like, we have to be praying now. This is just as, like, even the focus of the, like, I thought the script was so well written because even these little things that just happen, I don't know. Tony. Welcome to my upbringing. Tony apologizes to AJ. So I'm going to just dissect it real quick, and then I want to get your reactions. So Tony says he was wrong. He didn't mean it. That's a significant thing in my mind. Parents get heated, but few apologize and few mean it. I know a lot of guys from his generation, even a little bit older, uh, that saying sorry does not come easy. So the fact that it came so naturally for him and he was so sort of just like 
uh, he basically, AJ was his priest and he was confessing to his priest. Thought it was very eloquent what he did. He goes on to say, there's no excuse for that. I've never heard a dad figure in my life say anything even remotely close to that. Uh, again, this is my experience and this might be different for you. So I'm just saying, I thought it was powerful because of the prism that I look at the world through, right? Um, he explains his apology. He doesn't just say, I'm sorry, but he explains it again, which a dad explaining an apology to a teenager, it's above and beyond. And then he says, which is sort of the nail in the coffin for me, which he undoes. I'll say how he undoes it in a second, but he says, I see myself in you. I couldn't ask for a better son. I've, I've never, I feel like that's a very, very heartfelt apology. Now you're looking at me like you disagree. I mean, I guess... Too little, too late? Is that what it is? No, I guess I just feel like he knows exactly what to say to everyone. Also, Carmela was standing in the doorway. He didn't know that. But she insisted that he apologize earlier, so I'm sure she had some influence that he had to break bread or, like, repent for his sin to his son. That's why she checked in to make sure she was doing it. Naya, you sound awfully close to the dark side here. You're like Kylo (laughs) Renning me. You and John are, like, tag-teaming and, like, building a Death Star I'm also slightly resentful just because whenever anyone in my family did something wrong, we would offer food. Like, (laughs) it would be something that would always happen. Like, here, I brought you this. I'm sorry. Like, it, it is this weird offering of, he brought a pizza. It was one of the most redeeming moments for Tony, and it was a very sincere apology. And I think with the combination of him being in touch with his feelings more and being able to communicate that, uh, it's just unfortunate that it took such a horrible thing for him to say to get to this level of sincerity. The thing that threw me, I was in love, I was, I was eating out of his hand when he did that scene, right? As you could tell. The beauty of the show and the genius of David Chase, once again, is that it cuts from Tony being a somber, loving father to a cold-blooded killer in the span of a moment. He gets a phone call from Pussy. He takes the call, which I found problematic. I was like, you're having a moment with your kid. Finish the pizza. Spend the time. That's where I was like, whoa. Like, you can't go in and then bounce that quick. That was a problem, number one, which, again, goes back to this whole bipolarity. Like, we love him and we hate him. We love him and we hate him. But in an instant, he can make you do that. And part of that's the writing and part of that's the story. But he gets up and he goes and we segue to Matthew Bevilacqua, okay? So how'd they get Matthew Bevilacqua so quickly? Is that just like an editing choice in the show? Like, well, we're going to go from Tony's house to Matthew Bevilacqua? Because you see them dragging him into the snack bar, but there was no setup. Did there need to be a setup? They just found him at that place that George Washington had slept before, and they grabbed him. You guys, right? didn't, you guys didn't want a little bit more of like a buildup? Well, Tony said even outside with Richie, like, this won't take very long because people will want to be on our good side. So once we say that we're looking for him, people will want to come and give us the information. You're thinking he would have barricaded himself, but there might have been more of a like struggle a scene, or a, scene, a thing. A scene with him by himself sort of sweating it out. I don't know. Just a little, uh, I guess it's a little too, uh, what I'm asking for is to, it would have been wrapped up a little bit nicer for me. Like you see him kind of by himself in the woods. Do you remember the college episode with the guy who's kind of like looking around, he looks up, he sees a deer, and then all of a sudden they didn't give us that. They just went straight for the jugular. It'd be a fun deleted scene if there was one. There probably I wonder is. if there is. Yeah, I'll look. Prob- there look. probably is, yeah. I don't like, I, I hear you on that, but I also think the fact that we don't see him since he's running away from Richie until this scene is so intense. Yeah. And, like, I feel so bad for him, even though I hate him. Like, it, it's so hard to know. How tense was the train in the background? 
I thought about you. With I the think train. about it's you only man. now. It's yeah. classic the way that the train always just keeps rearing its head like a little snake. You know what I'm getting you for Christmas? Uh, a Lionel. You <laughs> 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 can drive a Lionel over to my house. He's, um, you know, get him one of those cool train hats. Oh, definitely. Um, so, why'd Matt lie? He was there too, and Chris saw him. So, why'd he lie to Tony? Like, what, what the f- I, I get it. He's got a gun in his face and whatever. There was no gun in his face at that point, actually. But why not be honest? It was, it was, was it over anyway? It just kind of bothered me. Like, who does he think he's lying to? I don't think he knew uh, Chris's situation at that point. If you're hung, okay, if you're hung up you somewhere, hidden, uh, he, I mean, you saw him on the ground, a bunch of blood. That answer satisfies me. For all yeah. he knows, Chris is dead. So he drank Diet Coke, not Fanta. Yeah, that's the big catch of all of that and most people don't realize that because they hang on the word that uh pussy says so puss hesitates but then fires the hesitation was a tell for tony too right i didn't notice that i guess i just assumed he would let tony shoot first as the mob boss do you think that puss thought that tony was going to kill him that night when he left when they pull the guns out and he says give me one You don't have to do this. Furio and me are on it. I want to do this. Good. Cut Furio loose. He's a crowd. Do you think, because the camera makes a point to look at pussy twice, not once, but twice, I always got the feeling that it was his, that was the moment for us. Because we, as viewers of the show, we know that it's coming to that point. And if you've watched it for the first time, this is a perfect opportunity to be endgame for Pussy 2. That would be a wild flip if that had happened. Well, and I could see the argument of if Tony still thought that Pussy was compromised, he wouldn't put himself in that situation. He wouldn't go, let's go find and kill this guy. He would have said, don't worry, Furio and I got it. Then I feel like Puss would have been concerned. Oh, more concerned mm-hmm. as if like, keeping him in. He's like, no, you're not going to come to this thing because I don't know about you. So what mm-hmm. I'm, one thing that I've always thought was that Tony was trying to get Pussy pinched to save his life and that he was setting him up to murder this guy and almost have like an FBI guy in the bushes kind of like, I'll, I'll like, I'm going to throw you a bone here. This is going to go down. And that way Tony could have gotten his revenge rather than ultimately doing what, you know, go, let the season play out. But I always felt that way. I always felt like there was a part of Tony that wanted to spare Pussy, especially while they're eating steaks. So this would have been a good moment for that as well. Make Pussy do the dirty work and then immediately pinch him because he did, he killed somebody and then take him and put him in jail for, for murder. I think you're right because I took it initially as he was surprised to hear that he was like chosen to do this deed. But that's like a pretty silly tell like oh me okay yeah and as we're gonna find out in the next couple of episodes uh pussy's fbi guy skips pissed he's not supposed to be killing people it's not part of the deal remember so um anyway could a netflix series be spun off on the basis of this episode and what would it look like i had to okay it would be the hell that christopher describes like the roman soldiers and like what's your title Hell, <laughs> like I don't know. I don't know what. Uh, I got one for you on that. 
And then I thought the Matthew Bevilacqua, but it would be like Survivor, Matthew Bevilacqua, like the 10 days alone before he got killed. Okay. So it'd be All like right. counting down till his death. Of okay. Like we see. So you're more each of a. You're, you're going to be more of like a conceptual show person. The title is like you're going to leave the title. You're going to. You guys can. You're going to keep titles. the working title. Yeah, I'll give you the, the give creative. Us the, and give you us guys the concept. You, yeah. Okay. John. Uh, I had it's always sunny in purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the uh, Irish bar. All the characters and so on. Oh, okay. I also have New Jersey medium. Okay, okay. I'm, I would watch I, that took, on TLC. It took me day. a second. <laughs> took me a second. Yeah. Yeah. My show is called Purgatory, Polly Galtieri in the Afterlife. Ooh. So it's a story about like a sci-fi thriller oh, about no. Polly <laughs> going through the many stages and gates. Um the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> that's basically like that's basically like that show Syl did later. Lily Hammer. Oh, Lily Hammer. I was like, what the fuck is That's, this? That's basically a sci-fi show of a mobster. I'm like, yeah. where am I? You know, it's so funny you mentioned that show. I, I had not such like high expectations Me for too. that show, though. I remember vividly where I was. I was living in an apartment with Katie. We had just moved to Silver Lake, and we were, the 49ers were in the playoffs. I'm a 49er fan. And I was like, there's this show with Silvio in it. And we, like, laid down, and we, like, made, we, like, made, like, a meal, like, a little smorgasbord, and we started watching it. And, like, 15 minutes in, we were like, this is shit. It sounds like this the is... sci-fi show you just explained. Yeah. Oh, damn it. Come on. Um, <laughs> if I had a good if I have well, a good Well, just writer, meaning it's so yeah, crazy it's and so like crazy so and ridiculous. Um, last call. Yours wouldn't be bad. Did you guys like this episode? This was one of the better ones. It's rated really high among fans. I didn't love Carmela's prayer. I thought it was really random. I didn't love Carmela's prayer either. I loved it. It was shot really well, but it felt like a very like Christmas narrative, which I guess was to exaggerate that she's not really a good Catholic, but she's yeah, trying to yeah. be portrayed in this way, but it just felt... F- also the song. I think the song you, threw me. You made me like it more by validating the fact that it was her <sighs> trying to be a good Catholic. It's like a like Christmas holiday prayer. I don't know. That's why I liked it. It's yeah. Well, it definitely stands out. Difficult to be a good person, and I know she's not the best, but in that moment she was using all the forces of nature that she thought she had to what she thought helped Christopher. I guess I just don't like, I'm not a voiceover person. Maybe I've done too much voiceover work in my day. So I'll finish with this. You mentioned a few minutes ago the ending of the show. And um, three o'clock is all over this episode as we've been discussing. I talked to my friend Ron at Sopranos Autopsy. And he references three o'clock in this episode several times. But in particular, the thing he said that shook me was that in Made in America, Mm. Mr. Members Only emerges from the bathroom on Tony's right side or three o'clock. So I messaged him and I said, that's an amazing observation. And he said that he believes it comes from a some someone called the master of sopranos it might be a book or an article um they mentioned it and it became a popular point i never knew that point that's a fascinating point and i guess it wouldn't have been contextually relevant to me until today because we're talking about this episode today but the three o'clock thing and christopher telling tony and paulie that mikey told me to tell both of you guys to watch out for the number three for three o'clock that is pretty 
again, look, everything's ambiguous. There's no hard definitive answer. But that is, if that is the case, then... Well, there's talk about uh, the first attempt on his life that we have seen. Uh, A guy has come from his three and seven o'clock and the guy that misses him. So you've heard this before. You've heard this three o'clock thing before. So it was new to me and it was mind-blowing, especially in the context of this episode. I want to say that when I was reading this autopsy thing uh, today, Leonard Cohen started playing on my playlist. And the song that started playing was Tower of Song. And in that song, if you know, there's like, I don't even know if it's a chorus. Now you know what this term is, but it's like a sub-chorus or whatever. But there's a background singers that go, a do-dum-dum-dum, a do-dum-dum. And the dum-dum-dum is in triplicates. And it kept on going back and forth like a drone while I was reading this in triplicates. And I counted it and it was three beats. And it was Leonard Cohen. It was talking about death. It was talking about three o'clock. It was talking about members only. Um, And I feel like that's all I got to say on that. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, Naya. Thanks. We'll see you next week.